It has been a bad week for altcoiners, perhaps none worse than Bob Lee, who is the CEO of MobileCoin, former CTO of Square, who was murdered in San Francisco last week. Obviously, it's a very sad event. I think it gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about MobileCoin and Square and sort of that whole story. Yeah, it's a sad thing when you hear this. And it's also another strange crypto-related murder. This is a weird thing that we've noticed on the show, and it's kind of grim to talk about, but it is a trend where there have been multiple odd deaths with different cryptocurrency project people or exchange operators. Lee had just recently moved from San Francisco to Miami, but he was back in San Fran on business just for a little bit of time. While he was there, this happened. And the police don't have a suspect. They haven't arrested anyone. Right. And this might be just random violence. You know, one thing that might give us a sense that there's a trend of increasing violence against cryptocurrency participants or or personalities is simply that as the number of people who are involved with quote unquote crypto increase, you're going to see the sort of population murder rate and all sorts of statistical averages on that population. And we're going to have a selection bias and just notice it. At the same time, let's just talk about what Bob Lee did. So Bob Lee was the CTO of Square. Square is behind the Cash App. The Cash App is a mobile application that allows you to do some financial transactions. You can connect it to your bank. They'll even give you a kind of debit card type thing that connects to your Cash App account. And we know about it because it's also a big Bitcoin application. It allows people to purchase Bitcoin generally in lower amounts. I think they're like $3,000 weekly maximum or something. So it's kind of like a very consumer facing Bitcoin application. It's not like trading on a professional exchange where you can trade tens of thousands or you know millions of dollars. Yeah, I have to admit until this news, I actually wasn't aware that Bob Lee was involved with the Cash App and Square. Um, I'm familiar with his work with MobileCoin. And that is, to me, sort of the more interesting turn of events. I think it was really sort of billed as this private cryptocurrency that could be used for payments on popular messenger apps. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, I think Signal was one of them. WhatsApp, though, it has been mentioned in the project's paper. Uh, Telegram's in there, too. So there's the idea was that eventually they developed something that messaging apps could integrate into, like the mobile coin wallet, into their uh, general you know, backend software. And so then they would all be using the same mobile coin for transactions with these quote-unquote secure chat apps. Right. And we've been critical of this mobile coin idea because we already have something that does that. It's called the Bitcoin Lightning Network. And to be fair, I think that a Lightning mobile wallet is more complicated than what MobileCoin created because MobileCoin is a fork of Monero. And instead of doing distributed consensus to validate transactions and add transactions to the chain history, they do a single node approach where there's basically a big server that's doing this consensus, but they do some of the computation inside a hardware device called an Intel SGX. And this 
is a specific piece of computer hardware. It's very specialized, and it creates what's called a secure enclave, which is like a, a place for computation to happen that's very hard to spy on. Even if you control the server, it's sort of hard to spy on. And so to me, this structure, the way that they're designing this, it really seems to be an attempt to create a technological solution to managing transactions in a way that does give users some privacy. And when your regulator comes and says, hey, we need to know all about these transactions, you can basically have plausible deniability and say, hey, the transactions are all validated inside the SGX Secure Enclave. We can't open that. A couple of problems with that, though. One, the SGX Secure Enclave technology has had a bunch of problems. So it is possible to, I think, theoretically access the data inside that enclave. So if the NSA comes after you, you're probably toast. They can see inside the enclave. But at the end of the day, it's just plausible deniability. You're still a centralized company running the back end for this entire thing. And so if MobileCoin is really successful, if people are using it a lot and transacting real volume, then regulators will shut it down because they'll say, well, okay, your system has too much privacy. We think it's used for money laundering and crime, and you can't demonstrate that it isn't. So we're shutting you and this system down and we'll send you to jail if you don't comply. So there's kind of a problem with that whole structure, in my view. The entire thing felt very trustworthy with the backend infrastructure. And of course, anything that started by sort of a single person company or group, I also <laughs> tend to be a little skeptical uh, immediately. But uh, by all accounts, um, Lee himself seemed like a, a pretty good guy. Um, he apparently was also a dad. He was about 42 years old. And Jack Dorsey said on, on Oster that uh, that he was um, absolutely essential to the Cash App. And uh, I think, I believe the, the lore goes, he, he basically created the first versions of the Cash App, uh, Lee did, and then kind of handed it over to a team at Cash, or I guess Square. And, you know, sad to hear these things. And you can't help but wonder, just because the circumstances are so odd, and I think what threw a little bit of uh, gasoline on the speculation around it was that uh, several insiders and CEOs took to Twitter shortly after his death speculating that, or at least saying that they had heard that it might have been a hit. So that just led to more speculation online. And of course, nobody really knows. These people are real gossips. They love generating this sort of gossipy rumor. They love the hot goss, don't they? And part of it is that it happened in San Francisco. And there is this narrative that San Francisco is just this kind of lawless experiment. And, and I don't want to use the W word, but in sort of progressive local politics that has gone to hell. And living in the Seattle area, you know, we can observe sort of similar problems in Seattle. And I'm not saying it's entirely due to progressive politics. I think that part of the issue with these downtowns with large homeless populations and large numbers of people using, you know, phenidol and, you know, other sort of opioid drugs is, you know, these people were sort of crushed by a very unfair economic model that um, doesn't produce a lot of jobs in the U.S., makes housing very unaffordable. And then the broken American private insurance-based healthcare system flooded uh, communities with legal heroin-like medications. And so when people were being crushed by globalization, the medical system was providing them with sort of like heroin substitutes legally. And then we realized that pushing Oxycontin on people was a terrible idea. We sort of tried to reverse that policy in American healthcare, but all these people were already crushed. And one crazy thing about the 
opioid epidemic, which I think demographically generally strikes sort of like working class white Americans, that's kind of the big group there, is that it really mirrors the so-called crack epidemic among black inner city Americans in the 80s. You know, it's kind of like the black community gets hit with these economic headwinds first, and they go through the exact same cycle as sort of working class white communities are experiencing now. Yeah. Just to make this needlessly political. <laughs> It's fiscal policy. And I guess maybe that's sometimes inherently political. But I believe uh, when you go through the West Coast cities, when you go through from San Francisco up and then Sacramento, in Sacramento, I saw entire camps. I can't even I can't even explain the size and scope. And I saw areas also that have been recently cleared out that were giant fields, you know, entire what would be considered like an entire city park had been completely taken over and then recently cleared out. And so it was all kind of trashed and um, acres. I mean, just football field after football field after football field of space. All were homeless. And that's all the way up the West Coast. And it's all through Portland. It's all through Seattle. Um, I, I drive that corridor several times a year and it's gotten worse since 2008. Since two, the 2008 crash, it's only gotten worse. And that's that's the little bit of pain that those people had to feel for the last cycle. And now we're doing it all over again with the current policy. To quote Jerome Powell. And just to be clear, these homeless people on the West Coast, they're not necessarily from the West Coast. You know, one thing that's happening is that Seattle and San Francisco, they're experimenting with policies that do not further punish people who are homeless. They're because, you know, New York City in the 90s, Rudy Giuliani, quote unquote, cleaned up New York. Do you know what he did? He had the NYPD put homeless people on buses and just ship them out of the city. And that's what a lot of red states in the U.S. are doing to their homeless populations. So they get to say, hey, look, we don't have a homeless problem, but they are literally using their local law enforcement to round up homeless people and forcibly migrate them to the West Coast because they know that L.A., San Francisco and Seattle and Portland aren't going to send them back. The West also has the most BLM land in the country. And so like in my circles that I travel, I know a lot of homeless people that have migrated West on their own initiative because the climate is more temperate. So if you have to live somewhere where you can't have air conditioning or heating, you have a good shot of surviving on the West Coast because it never gets that cold that often. Sometimes it does or that hot very often. What is BLM land? Uh, that's the Bureau of Land Management. These are areas that are in every state on the West Coast and they are they are federally owned and you're allowed to camp there for free for up to 14 days. And in some places like in Utah, they have extended programs where you can stay for nine months at a time on land for free or for like $100, depending on the bureau that runs it. And you can go look it up on Google, like go look on Google Images, you know, United States BLM map. And you'll see there's these ginormous chunks of land on the West Coast that you can camp on for free. And so that's a bit, another big reason is when you mix a tolerable climate, it can be sometimes a little rough, but if you can mix a tolerable client climate with with land you're allowed to camp on for free for about two weeks at a time it's very attractive and i and I, you know that's a that's a big draw too is that you're not going to freeze to death or burn to death in most seasons well that explains a lot because when i was driving to a campsite near mount saint helens we took a wrong turn and ended up on kind of like it wasn't really a road it was just i guess someone had driven through the yep. land yep and suddenly we found like I want to say a little community back there. And we're like, yeah, who, who are these people? And is this the beginning of a horror movie? We better back up. <laughs> there is a patch of woods in the town that I live in the city, I guess you could call it by the studio. 
there's a patch of woods and in there is a large 50 60 person plus community that lives in there now in the trees this is the bitcoin dad pod recorded on friday april 7th 2023 i'm your bitcoin dad and i'm here remotely with hey it's me swinging from the trees welcome back everybody it's chris this week, we're going to discuss how the peer-to-peer exchange Paxos has been shut down and some of the story around that, how crypto hedge fund scammers of Three Arrows Capital, Kyle Davies and Suzu, have created a new exchange to trade the bankruptcy claims that they created. A former Fed trader published an interesting blog post, which is kind of a Federal Reserve perspective on euro dollars. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, a massive investment bank, has published a letter of the bank status, which reveals, I think, a lot about how he feels banking is going and maybe where Bitcoin fits in there. That's our interpretation. In energy, the Texas legislature has voted to limit participation of Bitcoin miners in energy demand response programs, while at the same time, a separate proposal in Texas wants to create a gold-backed digital currency. Very juicy. In Bitcoin education, Bitcoin Optech 245 covers a new proposal for lightning watchtower accountability. We'll tell you what a watchtower is and how you might hold one accountable. And we also have a guide to setting up your own neutrino node, which is a sort of Bitcoin light node that still allows you to access the Bitcoin blockchain as a first-class Bitcoin citizen. Then we have some feedback and boosts, and that's our show. It does feel like another week where a lot of little pieces are clicking into place, and we'll look back at this time, and there'll be so many of these little events that combine together make for some big changes. Uh, like, I think, honestly, Paxos shutting down is one of them. Pax, Pax full, Pax full, not to be confused with Paxos. Was okay. Maybe I don't understand the difference. I thought, I thought Paxos was shutting down. Paxos is the, and I get them confused too. I had to Google this for about five minutes to clear it up. Paxos is a digital asset company that creates stable coins. And so right, they have the Paxos right. USD stable coin, yes. and then they also created the Binance Paxos stable coin. That's so, why I'm familiar with their name from in the recent news with Binance. That's why that name sounds familiar. Exactly. And so Paxful is, to be frank, a much sort of smaller deal, at least by market cap. They were a peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange. They tried to focus on the global South, Africa, Latin America, you know, these other markets. They did a very similar thing to local Bitcoins. And I remember when local Bitcoins was sort of adding more and more KYC and clearly going to be going out of business at some point. I looked at Paxful and I thought, why is there a Paxful? It's just like literally the same as local Bitcoins, except with a kind of flashier user interface? And the answer is because local Bitcoins, I think, was a company with 30 people. So they had no chance to, to basically comply with the onerous compliance of being a financial company. Paxful had 400 employees and 100 of them were in compliance, according to Ray Youssef, the former CEO. So they just had, I think, more resources to handle compliance for longer. But it, it didn't work out. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it was quite the mess. It sounds like there was conflict internally between the two co-founders. It sounds like the entire executive staff, except for one person, walked out. Whatever's going on, there sounds like there's some sort of regulatory pressure pushing on them as well. Absolutely. And from what Ray has said, the Know Your Customer, KYC Compliance, and Anti-Money Laundering, AML, complying with these regimes made it impossible to run their business because they were dealing with a lot of users in the developing world who were essentially trying to trade gift cards for Bitcoin. They had such a lack of access to traditional financial rails that they were literally using gift cards as dollar proxies. They were trying to bank a group of people that frankly cannot be banked in the legacy system. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, hold on, people who have a lot of gift cards and are trying to monetize them, those are hackers. Those are script kiddies who are hacking Roblox accounts, hacking people's credit card and raking up gift cards and then trying to cash them out before the gift card company claws it back. That's a, that's an uncharitable view of that sort of activity. But there are so many gift card scams out there. And the truth is we can't know what's a scam and what's real. And so we think that a neutral monetary layer where enforcing rules isn't the job of the monetary system is a solution. Therefore, we have Bitcoin. But for businesses like Paxful, their entire purpose is to be that membrane between the fiat system and the Bitcoin system. And they're a custody platform. They have a custodial wallet that still has $900,000 locked up in it. And when they get KYC and AML and OFAC compliance notices from their regulators, they have to freeze funds and they are not allowed to communicate with their customers about why those funds were frozen, because if they do, they could be perceived as sort of assisting someone with breaking financial regulations and therefore, you know, CEO go to jail kind of situation. So I'm very sympathetic to these incredibly brutal financial compliance requirements they were operating under. At the same time, you know, I didn't love that platform. I thought their education materials were really, really messy and bad. And, um, you know, maybe I'm being too harsh, but I, I didn't love that platform. That's just my two cents. Yeah, in my opinion, having watched uh, an interview with Ray, he doesn't seem like a uh, faithful operator to me. He seems to be um, hiding something, in my in my opinion. I don't get a, a trustworthy read from him. I think there's been some shenanigans here. And it's interesting when you look at each one of these types of exchanges or operations. I can't speak to local Bitcoins, but the other ones, it always seems like, oh, look at there's a real character story behind this. Turns out the two co-founders were essentially at war and the guy that's now the public face has a shady past. Enough that back in 2016, people on Bitcoin talk were saying, don't leave your Bitcoin with this company. Don't trust these people. They look like scammers. I mean, that's been going around in the Bitcoin community since a newer one, two, three, one posted it back in September 20th of 2016. There's just been red flags about these guys. So then when you see it all fall apart and this guy goes on there and claims he's been up for 36 hours fighting to get people's money back and that's the only thing that matters and he's on a mission to complete Bitcoin. I, I hear somebody that sounds like a con man. Um, I've watched this happen for 20 years in Linux is people who 
know how to work the emotional buttons of a group of people that all collectively want to see something happen. So in the Linux community, there's a large people that re- there's a large group of people that really want to see the desktop become a thing. And there's all kinds of means to that ends. And you'll see for the last 20 years, I could I could rattle off a dozen different scammers that have come along and promise to help deliver the dream of desktop Linux if you get behind them and you get on board their cause, maybe even fund them and buy their product if they sell product and maybe even join some sort of fundraiser if they have that. And then all those people, that whole group of people ends up getting scammed. And the reason why nobody ever catches it is because the person saying everything that everybody wants to hear, because they all want to see this thing succeed. And so they want this person to be saying these things. And so they get on board with it and they get behind it. And people take advantage of that over and over again. Doesn't matter if it's Linux or Bitcoin. And in my personal opinion, that's my read on Ray and all the things he says about what he wants to do. And now here we are. We see yet another one of the things he's involved in falling apart. And I'm just not surprised after watching that interview today. Paxos had a backend connection to Celsius. So they were letting people do yield. Not, I mean, that's terrible. That's really garbage. Just having that to me implies that you would never really cut it in terms of complying with um, traditional financial system regulators because Celsius was a Ponzi scheme and you're sort of offering Celsius as a service. So it's kind of like you're selling unregistered securities that kind of tie in with a Ponzi scheme. It's really bad. A lot of bad decisions were made there. At the same time, I guess maybe I'm a sap, so please give me your opinion on this. I do have some respect for people who have been trying to do things in Bitcoin for a long time, and I think it's pretty unrewarding. You generally make much more money trying to promote altcoin scams, and you get a huge amount of blowback because even we are dunking on these people. So I just want to say that I respect people who try to make businesses in Bitcoin and provide services for people to, you know, to use Bitcoin and to like experiment to see where it can fit and where it can work in our still dollar denominated world. At the same time, you know, it is difficult to tell who's a good actor, who's doing things right. Frankly, I'm sure we'll learn a lot more because it sounds like the two co-founders, Ray Youssef and this other guy whose name nobody knows, are probably going to battle it out in court and those documents will likely be public. I suspect it's not going to be good for Ray. That would be my bet. Back in 2016, when Ray and his co-founder were arrested and they had coke and hash and uh, AR-15s and 500 rounds of ammunition and a box of random drug materials, Ray's defense was, well, it wasn't me. It was my buddies. They were uh, taking Instagram photos and stuff and, you know, getting into drugs. I mean, I had some legal hash that I bought in Colorado, but the coke and all the guns, that was just my buddies. That wasn't me. That's what Ray said. That sounds like quite a party. Yeah. And then in the recent interview, when he was asked about Celsius, his answer was, oh, yeah, no, that wasn't me. That was my co-founder. I just never liked that stuff. Wasn't me. I wasn't involved with that. I really didn't want to have that. But, you know, I fought. I was a CEO, but I mean, they made me put in a Celsius integration. Ah, what could I do? (laughs) His defense is, oh, yeah, it wasn't me. It was my buddy. Just like it was back in 2016 when he got arrested for guns and ammunition. And there's a pattern there. The pattern is, hey, I did the right thing and everyone else did the wrong thing. Yeah. And, and you know, it doesn't see, it doesn't seem like it was a great company to begin with. And I, here's just my premise, just really quick, super short. I think the desperate people probably flocked to Bitcoin first 
and we're seeing a washout of this. The Christmas of this crypto winter is the washout of these Celsius and Ray-like, in my opinion, scammers who didn't have sound businesses, whose businesses are collapsing under the strain of a prolonged bear market. And when we look back at this time, I think we're going to be grateful that we just washed out SBF and, and all these guys. And it's not just the bear market. It's the bear market in regulators going after Bitcoin and crypto companies and trying to roll back the clock eight years to a world where suddenly we understand why Tether exists, because these exchanges cannot get bank accounts. There's pressure on all sides. And I, I guess I agree with you. Well, that's nice. Um, now, if there's only some way we could make a little money on all these failed crypto exchanges and currencies, you know, like what we need is like an exchange focused on trading claims of bankrupt cryptocurrency companies. That could be a winner of an idea. OPNX, great name, Open Exchange, is now live and it's focused on letting users trade claims of bankrupt crypto communities. For instance, you can trade claims of uh, FTX deposits, uh, CoinFlex. What would be my old, uh, what my old Mt. Gox claims be worth? That's got to be worth something, right? I don't know. We'd have to check out the OTX exchange, but it is not <laughs> available in the US. And gosh, what is the name of that new bill in Congress that's trying to ban TikTok? The Restrict Act. I've heard that there's language in the Restrict Act that means that if we used a VPN to connect yeah. to a banned website, we would go to jail for 20 years. Or a minimum $250,000 fine. And if you can't pay a big fine to the government, do you go to jail? I mean, yeah, <laughs> just, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So basically jail. <laughs> at least debt slavery, right? Well, it's it's really rough. Hmm. I wonder. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a bummer. But let's go figure if they're going to launch something like this. How, I don't even know how you do something like this. This seems ripe for all kinds of issues. And the context is that this exchange that's being started to trade bankrupt claims, it's associated like with Kyle Davies and Suzu of Three Arrows Capital, who are literal financial scammers, as in they went to financial institutions, you know, Digital Currency Group, Voyager, maybe Celsius. I mean, they went to all these companies that were pretty shady in the first place. And then they lied to those companies about the state of their finances, about what sort of financial transactions they were doing. And they used these lies to borrow money. So that is called fraud. That is illegal. And these people are literally on the run. Incredible. They're hanging out in Bali, which is, I guess, a no extraction place. You know, they're not coming to any country where they could be uh, picked up by Interpol or U.S. authorities because they're on a wanted list. You know what, Dad? Maybe they got something figured out here. You know what? Let's be honest, because maybe we're the saps. Uh, although I'll tell you, the the uh, smell of desperation is all over this one because they partnered up with CoinFlex, right? Well, so CoinFlex was on the verge of collapsing. So I don't know how CoinFlex is going to stay strong through this. It's just the whole thing seems like a house of cards. But I guess you just keep moving from one thing to the next. Keep rolling and uh, you're fine. It's like the uh, crypto scammer version of house flipping, but like really crappy houses that fall apart after people move in. It does feel like a step down for these guys, because let's not forget, they spent uh, like a hundred million dollars of their hedge funds money to try and buy a super yacht that they were going to call much wow after yes. a dogecoin meme they're adults those are grown adults isn't that something and that three arrows capital gig was a good thing they had going there for a bit too and i think voyager lent them 300 million 
$1,000 unsecured to the guys with the much wow yacht. Kind of lets you know how smart the people running these institutions are. Uh, you might want to think about self-custody. That's all I'll say. But we're totally not living in a late-staged, financialized economy. Totally. Is that my lead-in to Ameridollars? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> okay. FedGuy.com. Let me just plug this guy. Uh, Joseph Wong is a former Fed trader. This article is a response to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, the shakiness of First Republic Bank, the failure of Signature Bank. And Joseph is talking about how complicated euro dollars are in a banking system that requires the backing of the Federal Reserve to provide infinite dollars in case a bank is short-term insolvent. As we know, fractional reserve banks are built around the concept of maturity mismatch. That means you take $100, you put it into the bank of dad, and then the bank of dad takes 90 to 99 of those dollars and lends them out in longer term loans that the bank of dad earns interest on. And therefore, I might pay you as a depositor some interest on your deposit. But you can see that this fundamental model relies on the assumption that you are not going to remove all of your dollars from my bank. You're going to just keep the, keep them there, kind of. And this assumption has held for, I think, most of the time in the past hundred years, because in our traditional financial system, people do need a place to store dollars. They need a place to store money. And banks have been a very convenient place to store them because banks generally don't fail. Banks have, at least in the United States, insurance. So even if the bank does fail, for most people, they're going to be covered by this $250,000 insurance cap. Of course, I think that cap uh, was only raised to that level in 2008 or 2009. So, you know, the insurance cap increases with every crisis. I guess that would make you feel safe if you were a depositor. But I think more importantly, you need to deposit dollars in banks because dollars in bank accounts enable you to connect to payment systems. You can't really have a credit card without a bank account to pay that credit card bill from. You can't have a PayPal account or a Venmo or a Cash App or a Strike. They all kind of piggyback on top of bank accounts. And so there's kind of a network effect to money in a bank account. It's very useful. It can be sent digitally using traditional financial payment systems. Okay, so that's why we have bank accounts and why people store their money in them, even though they know that technically speaking, those dollars aren't there. The dollars you deposited have been invested into a wide range of financial assets that the bank cannot sell for dollars immediately. So banks only work if you can deposit money and kind of stay in the bank and not really want to take it out uh, really quickly, or at least not everyone wants to take it out really quickly. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to cover it. And so the thing that we seem to be able to do here in the States is through all kinds of extraordinary measures, we can cover when a drawdown happens at like Silicon Valley Bank or something like that. It seems like this article raises the question, like, what do we do if a similar type of drawdown happens in a bank that's a foreign bank that isn't protected by the U.S. government? It's outside the purview of U.S. regulators. That seems to be where we kind of don't have an answer because we can't just give them more dollars. Obviously, you can't just, you know, give them some sort of temporary loan program or buy assets all of a sudden from them. 
We don't print their local currency. Ah, that is a interesting point. So for foreign banks that have dollar liabilities in the form of dollar deposits, generally speaking, they can go to their foreign central bank for emergency credit lines in case they have a dollar run on their dollar deposits. Depending on the political relationship between this foreign country and the United States, that country might have a foreign exchange swap line with the Federal Reserve. That means that the Federal Reserve actually has these sort of special relationships with some foreign banks. And I think that's the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan. There are quite a few others. However, what about the People's Bank of China? That's actually the largest economy in the world now. I think that's technically larger than the U.S. economy, the Chinese economy. Why isn't there a foreign exchange swap line with that bank? Uh, and the answer is it's political. And this is really problematic. But the thing is, these foreign exchange swap lines, they sound like a superpower. It means that if Credit Suisse has a big problem, which they did, then Credit Suisse can say, hey, uh, Swiss National Bank, uh, we're seeing kind of a run on our dollar deposits. And if we start to sell off our asset portfolio to meet these deposit outflows, we're going to take massive losses because of the, dur the duration mismatch on these assets. And it's especially difficult because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates on you know US government debt, and we hold some of this debt. And as the interest rate has gone up, the debt that we bought a year ago is now can't be sold for the amount we paid for it. And so this really could result in a problem for us. So the Swiss National Bank says, hey, don't worry, Credit Suisse. And this actually happened, I think, four months ago. We will give you $60 billion at some sort of, we'll lend it to you at some sort of, uh, there's an agreement here. And then the Swiss National Bank went over to the Fed and say, hey, Fed, uh, can we get $60 billion for some reason? And the Fed was like, yeah, sure, here you go. Now that showed up in the FX swap line data uh, a while ago. And there was speculation, I think, that, yeah, it was probably Credit Suisse because Credit Suisse is a real basket case. And it took months for that to unwind and for Credit Suisse to blow up and go insolvent and be acquired by UBS. As you can see, these FX lines are pretty useful, I guess, for banks with dollar deposits if they have a good relationship with their foreign central bank, but they're not that useful because as you can hear, they're kind of complicated to use. There's a couple steps. You can't necessarily access the dollars super fast. Obviously, it's very political. Even in the foreign country, which bank is allowed to touch this facility? You have to have a good relationship with the bank regulators. Often these institutions like central banks are highly political. So you can see that there is a complicated political question, problem, whatever, with accessing this mechanical dollar liquidity that is probably necessary to keep the Ameridollar or Eurodollar system functional. It sounds like it incentivizes centralization of banking all around the world to the banks that have access to this, which are going to be the big banks with the political connections. And we have an interesting effect happening here in the States where big money is leaving the small banks and consolidating into the top four largest banks that are becoming larger than they ever have and are having historic inflows. And I wonder if we're going to see a similar thing around the world where you're going to just see money move to where the dollar is the safest. And you're going to have folks realize that, uh, you know, where I'm at right now in my bank, not safe. If there was a run, they wouldn't be able to cover me. And you're going to just start seeing more and more centralization, I suspect, which I don't know, seems like will actually lead to greater fragility 
but can't say that for sure. Joseph has an interesting point here, which is that as banks use these various instruments to access dollar liquidity overseas, so as, for instance, Deutsche Bank seems to be making use of these emergency dollar funding systems, confidence in that institution falls precipitously. And if there isn't a very efficient and smooth way for foreign banks to kind of get infinite dollar liquidity, because that's what's needed to keep fractional reserve banks alive in a time of uncertainty, then there's a surprising and terrible conclusion, which is dollars might not be safe except inside the United States. They might not be safe except if they are deposited or invested in assets that are custodied by U.S. domiciled banks. And I'm not talking about J.P. Morgan Europe, J.P. Morgan Asia. Foreign branches of U.S. banks are technically foreign banks from the perspective of the Federal Reserve and do not have access to the same sorts of insurance and emergency funding. So if there is a loss of confidence in the ability of banks to service deposit outflows without going insolvent, that could paradoxically somehow reverse the euro dollar system. And instead of having a world where most of the dollars exist outside of the United States, you would see dollars flowing into the US to try and find safety there. That could be incredibly destabilizing. Interestingly enough, that would likely stimulate a wild sort of stock market bubble or some sort of financial bubble in the U.S. if something like that were to happen. Oh, boy. And I kind of it's it's hard to even conceive of where that leads to other than it's got to make people question storing a lot of wealth in dollars if they're outside the states, I would imagine, or they have to be totally comfortable investing in whatever's booming in the states should that happen. It almost feels like, though, it could create a situation that's unreversible just by the its structural incentives, right? If you're only covering fully the banks in the United States and you're only fully covering the big banks, it's sort of just this the structural things that are in place. It's what do you get? You can't reverse that because now the system's dependent on those on those new uh, new programs and, and new support structures. And, and interestingly enough, it leads to weird situations where you can't experiment with different financial models because Caitlin Long's Custodia Bank wanted to have a full reserve, full custody bank that would never be vulnerable to a bank run and have that be a fully fledged bank in the US that had access to the Fed window. And the Fed said, no, that's kind of interesting because that seems to be the bank people want. People want a bank that doesn't have deposit risk. But if you were to create that bank, it might suck up a huge amount of deposits from other banks in the system and cause them to fail, ironically. So there's this kind of weird stagnation, we're stuck right here situation in the legacy banking system, where if you try new banking models that don't have the same risks that seem endemic to contemporary banks, you might kill all of the sort of legacy banks. And so, you know, what do you do? How do you transition away from this really crappy situation? And I don't think there is a clear answer. I think that for us, we probably would suggest, well, this is the situation where Bitcoin really shines because it's an asset without custody risk. So if you self-custody Bitcoin, you don't have to care about who's custodying your money because you are. And 
anyone else losing their Bitcoin or banks going insolvent does not matter if you are custodying the asset yourself. Obviously, it's going to take a while for the rest of the world to catch up with us, but we think that's probably where this is going. And I am so grateful that no current policymaker decides the monetary policy of Bitcoin. Because when I review the people in charge and the people that run the establishment and the big banks, their strategy just appears to be, let's double down on everything we're doing and let's just manage it more and just wait. It's going to get better. And if those people were making monetary policy decisions for Bitcoin, uh, it would be in a sad world. They're managing the hell out of it. They sure are. Sometimes they're making a lot of money along the way. And turning into sort of famous personalities that opine on everything from, you know, the radicalization of America's youth to climate change. There must have been another point in history where bankers were celebrities like this, right? Because when Jamie Dimon speaks, the world listens now. He's treated like absolute royalty on the uh, television news. I wonder if it's that Jamie is a banker or rather that he's perceived to be part of this billionaire class, because it does seem like modern news or culture really fawns over incredibly wealthy people in a way that feels different from when I was a child. Yeah, that's definitely an element, huh? And we're talking about Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, which is one of the world's largest financial institutions. It's a retail bank. It's an investment bank. They have a wealth management for super rich people. They do that. They pay hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in fines every year for enabling financial transactions between drug dealers, murderers, and uh, you know, authoritarian despots. And they also seem to have a great reputation. So go figure. But um, as a publicly traded company in the United States, JP Morgan has to release periodic communications with the shareholders to update them on the state of the bank's operations and its outlook. This letter is uh, signed Jamie Dimon, though I imagine lots of people worked on it. And it's pretty interesting as a snapshot into what kind of consensus thinking on the economy and the banking crisis and other things are. So one thing that's I kind of laugh at is that this letter and Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan, they are still espousing a good economy viewpoint. They're saying we're in a good economy because consumers are healthy. I don't know how they're calculating that. Uh, job growth is healthy. I think that we've talked before about how looking at jobs numbers is a really bad idea for figuring out the state of economy because those numbers get revised a lot and they're very backwards looking. So as people get laid off and bad things happen in the real economy, it actually takes months for those effects to show up in jobs numbers. Higher wages, while some wages may have increased in the U.S., they have increased at a much lower pace than inflation. So actually, consumer spending is under stress. So I don't know how they make that positive conclusion. They also talk about recovering supply chains. Again, if we look at container rates between the U.S. and China, it doesn't look like there is a huge upshoot in activity. So maybe the supply chain is no longer blocked, but there doesn't seem to be demand for goods from China like there were before the pandemic. So that doesn't seem particularly positive to me. Then he talks about normalized interest rates. And I mean, this is kind of a, I mean, such a stupid statement. It's really hard to take it seriously because while for someone in their 50s or 60s, Fed funds rates around 5% might seem pretty normal. The issue with interest rates isn't the level, it's the speed of increase because that's the 
uh, sort of effect on your interest rate uh, portfolio. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, essentially, uh, an interest rate, if you can think about the interest rate on uh, US Treasury debt, I think it, right now it's like 5%. Uh, this is like a global price. That means that whenever you transact with a Treasury security, the interest rate you're getting in that transaction kind of needs to be 5% right now. Because if it's higher or lower, it's going to be arbitraged out through sort of buying and selling in an open market. And that means that if your bond was purchased a couple months ago when interest rates were only 4%, and now interest rates are 5%, you need to make this bond equal 5% interest, which means you need to discount it. You need to kind of cut the price you can sell it at until at a lower price, the amount it's paying out equals 5% of that new price, if that makes sense. That's bond math. We talk about it a lot. It's kind of hard to grok for many people. While 5% interest rates, like historically, are actually pretty low, if we look over all 5,000 years of human history, interest rates have never gone from zero to 5% before. And so talking about normalized interest rates like they're a good thing is uh, just, you know, in incredibly asinine, in my opinion. I sort of had that impression from a lot of reading this is it's essentially the common consensus synthesized into their brand's view of the world. But there was one area that I wanted to get your take on because, you know, besides the fact that he comments on quantitative easing, he comments on political tensions, he comments on world tensions, uh, he has advice for the military and how the military should be positioning themselves, which I thought was interesting. He has a thing in here that he talks about how he thinks financial, or I guess the people that wrote this for him, talk about how they don't think we'll have financial stability until uh, we get more money in the hands of the poor. And uh, he talks about perhaps increasing the child tax credit. And he also talks about completely eliminating the requirement for children to get some of these tax credits. Uh, one time, one thing they specifically call out is some tax changes that would put like $6,200 more in people's pocket a year. And he thinks, you know, this is necessary to sort of stabilizing the bottom half of the economy. The irony of an incredibly wealthy one percenter talking about fixing income inequality to reignite the American dream is, you know, it's really rich because he talks a lot about this earned income tax credit, but he doesn't talk about increasing his effective tax rate. One point I'd like to hammer on is that we talk a lot about monetary policy on this podcast, but the real revolution in centralizing American wealth to the very top of society is tax reform. It's actually tax policy that year on year shifts wealth upwards in American society. And it's not sexy, it's complicated, it's incredibly emotionally charged when people talk about it. But nowhere in any of these proposals from sort of wealthy billionaires is a progressive tax on incredibly wealthy people. And it's complicated because once you get to a certain level of godlike wealth, you're not earning a salary. You just have huge amounts of assets. And some people think like, okay, well, once you get to the asset level, taxes no longer apply to you. That's how we've arranged society and that's how we should run with it. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners who are not rich by any measure of uh, Jamie Dimon get a little confused here because they think, well, you know, one day Bitcoin is going to be worth so much money. So I don't want any of this asset based taxation. And I would say, oh, I'm not sure. I've heard the exact same arguments against high taxes from relatively working class people who would never be hit with these high taxes in their whole life. And they're supporting uh, policies that are directly against their immediate economic interests. So 
I struggle with that, to be honest. What I get is we're doubling down, right? Everything we've been doing, let's do more of it. Let's make sure that all of the Western alliances that have formed after the collapse of the Soviet Union and after World War II, let's double down on those. Let's make sure that, you know, we double down on these economic systems we have. And um, kind of goes on and talks about how what really just would solve everything going on is if we just had more and better of what we've had for the last 30, 40 years. I struggle to see the logic. It's the same logic that Jay Powell and uh, sex seem to have, and Jamie Dimon, top banker, seems to share it. I'm sure the other bankers do as well. How can they not see the obvious fragility of the system and, and the clear change for systemic improvement that is required? I guess when you benefit so greatly for something, it's hard to see its flaws. But uh, when you read through this, you'd think that the only problem is, is that we're just not doing more stuff that we've been doing all along. <laughs> That's the general takeaway. And then in here, there's so much wavy word language like um, we want shows up 30 times, should do, should, should happen is in there like 52 times, could, this could be better if is in there like 10 times throughout this whole thing. Like all these things are should, could, would, maybe, you know, all these suggestions and ideas to just basically that speak towards common, common consensus. And he's just calling for more of it. And uh, it's, it's just, it's such a silly worldview. I guess things look pretty small from the top and it's hard to get the uh, definition. Sorry, I, I got lost in it. What I really wanted to talk about is Jamie Dimon's comments on banking. There's some good bits here. He says that the banking crisis is not over. That's interesting because the Federal Reserve says it is over. So Jamie says it's not. I agree with Jamie here. He also says these failures are not good for banks of any size. You know, he's doing this thing. It kind of reminds me of the BLM deb debate where it's like all lives matter. He's saying this, this damage is all banks. He doesn't want any legislation coming down the pipe that says, OK, now we need to do something to advantage small and medium banks at the expense of J.P. Morgan. This is like little political language there. He talks about how everyone wants to strengthen regional, mid-sized and community banks. This is so ridiculous. J.P. Morgan doesn't care. I wouldn't pass over the fact that he says in here that the banking system benefited from large banks. He says, quote, any crisis that damage Americans trust in their banks damages, and this is bold, all banks. He put that in bold. A fact known even before this crisis, like many facts that are in this paper. He goes on to say, while it's true that the bank crisis, quote, benefited larger banks, banks due to the inflow of deposits they receive from the smaller institutions, the notion that this meltdown was good for them in any way is absurd. It's absurd, right? Like, I just love the language here. Like, yes, sure, we people say we benefited, but the trust was harmed. But, you know, thanks to our large institutions absorbing all of this, we we're able to sustain some of that trust. <laughs> it's completely inconsistent. Yes, J.P. Morgan benefited from higher deposits due to a lack of confidence in regional banks. That's it. That's what happened. He's saying, yeah, but maybe not. The other thing that I find really interesting here is that he talks about how banking is going to get worse over time because banks have to satisfy all of their regulators. And he says that JP Morgan is regulated by more than 10 entities in the United States alone and also needs to satisfy every foreign regulator where they have a presence or they interact with a foreign bank. They have over 7,000 employees working in risk management, 1,400 lawyers, and 3,700 compliance people. 
These are very large numbers just to remain compliant with regulation. You haven't done anything at this point. You've just you know, managed to fill all the forms to keep on existing. This kind of gives us a lens into how banking is breaking. I think legacy finance really is moving in a problematic direction. We have the story of Paxful. There's a lot of discussion around how difficult it was for them to remain compliant with TradFi rules. JP Morgan is also complaining about this. I'm inclined to listen. I think that this likely is a real issue for banks to be able to function in a sustainable and uh, safe manner is that regulatory compliance is actually you know, sort of a risk. Uh, it's not helping banks remain safer. It's consuming resources that raise their operating costs and you know potentially don't even help them and may even hurt them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not often you see the tiny, small little upstarts and the biggest dog saying the same thing. Uh, they write, the rules are constantly changing or being enhanced and sometimes unfortunately driven by political motivations. Relationships with regulators can often be intense. And recently, we've lost some terrific people in our firm because of this. Regulators know that when banks disagree, we essentially have no choice. There is no one to appeal to, and even the act of appealing can make them angry. We simply ask respectably, respectfully to be heard, but at the end of the day, we will do what they ask us to do. Yeah, you can even tell in that capitulation right there, like they had to capitulate at the end of that sentence in order not to anger right. <laughs> the regular. Their compliance team were like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jamie, tone it down. <laughs> you got to put the sentence in here or else we're going to be in hot water. <laughs> I want to make them angry. This is a long, frustrating read. Give it a go if you want to know how Jamie Dimon views uh, a variety of topics. I can't really recommend it, but it's just, I mean, it's odd because it feels like yet another TradFi critic of Bitcoin throwing up their hands and saying, hey, man, this system we got here is totally foobarred. But I mean, yeah, we'll just keep on doing it. Like, what else could we use? You know, because you know, clearly anything else is a total scam. I mean, I think we really have no better advocate for Bitcoin than the people who criticize it and try to evangelize this traditional system that you know is clearly very problematic. Yeah, and it's eating the top and the bottom at the same time. Speaking of burning the candle at both ends, what's going on in Texas? You mean the land of Bitcoin mining and, and the home of Austin, Texas, where uh, the Bitcoin flow freely? Apparently, uh, three Texas senators have put together a bill that will limit 10% of the uh, load that can be in this flexible program to Bitcoin miners also remove Bitcoin miners that participate in this flexible load program. It'll remove their tax exemption status from some of their equipment. Obviously, the mining companies and other industrial companies use to uh, sort of expense the cost of the machinery. The idea is with this industry booming, I guess, you know, to, to kind of put a throttle on it, to put a choke collar around it before it gets too big. And we've got a growth industry here that somebody's got to keep an eye on, I guess, is the thinking. It's pretty interesting because Texas has been for the past two years kind of a destination for Bitcoin miners leaving China. There was an increase of about 75% in terms of power usage over that period going to Bitcoin mining. And that is a big influx. And I think that when things change fast, people can get frightened. So I could imagine that local Texans who are not involved in Bitcoin might be concerned about the number of Bitcoin 
companies that are moving there and the amount of power they're using. I don't know if that negatively affects Texans because it seems like there is this kind of issue with the Texas ERCOT grid where they have lots of power. Their problem is balancing their power production with demand. And when things get out of balance, the grid goes down like it did in that uh, winter storm last year. And I think there was also a heat wave. It was a couple of years ago that the that they went up. Last year, there was the heat wave and they didn't have a problem. And I think that some Bitcoin miners were slapping themselves on the back because, you know, they thought they were a part of the solution. Well, they did. Remember, we saw we were, we were doing the show then. We saw the reports that they were shutting down the, their data centers and returning that power back to the grid. It happened as was hoped. You know, they were a reliable demand. They were flexible when the grid needed it back. So they shut down and people could run their air conditioners. And people were angry about that because when they shut down, they sell the power back to the grid. So they actually stop Bitcoin mining, but then they start participating in this, you know, new higher spot power rate market. That wasn't necessarily the political win that people thought it would be, because even though there wasn't a blackout, people were still paying highly elevated prices for power because, you know, Texas has this kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, like consumers in Texas, like a regular person running their air conditioner, you're treated like a business. And so like your power price can go from, you know, 10 cents a kilowatt hour to like, you know, $9, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Now, um, all large industries that, that use a lot of power, you know, I know you know this, but just for the audience's sake, that industry, whatever it might be, that plant, you know, steel plant, whatever it is, concrete factory, they buy their energy contract a year ahead of time. And in that is negotiated a rate that if they don't use all the power, they can sell it back. That's just a standard arrangement that's been with industry forever. And the Bitcoin miners are just participating in that arrangement. I don't know, you could argue it's not a good one, it sounds like, for the regular consumers. But it does make it viable for the additional capacity to be online and be actual revenue generating that can then go into the overall grid and supply additional power. And I think you can successfully argue that it worked. Um, it also, they did it in the winter for a bit a year ago, too. So we have two seasons where some demand has been turned off. And the idea of this bill is to limit Bitcoin mining to just 10% of the program's total, which uh, seems like that'd be pretty quick to get. Now, that's I don't think we're there yet in that number, but it seems like it'd be pretty quick to reach that. And then, of course, like I mentioned, if you do participate in that program, then you don't get the tax breaks, which this isn't, they don't do this to steel. They don't do this to concrete. They don't do this to the other industry like oil down there, but they're doing it to Bitcoin miners. And um, it's three senators behind this, Lois Kolkhorst, uh, from District 8, Donna Campbell from District 25, and Robert Nicholas from District 13. It's a really simple bill. It's about one page long. It's Texas Bill 1751, and it seeks to prohibit ERCOT from compensating Bitcoin miners for shutting down during demand spikes. Other industries take advantage of this. It's not a Bitcoin only thing. And if they have to shut down their entire business, there should be some sort of compensation, I would think there. Now, how that gets reflected in pricing, I don't know. But it's also flexibility that, you know, AWS, Azure, Apple iCloud, they can't just shut down like that. And this is a particular kind of modern workload that provides good, clean, indoor jobs that pay well with benefits to people in underserviced areas of Texas in a lot of cases. And so you're also limiting the potential job growth for areas that have been experiencing declines for 20, 30 years. And I think that's a little disappointing, especially you're also trying to make money in this tax area on an industry that you don't really know where it's going to go. Like you're kind of just assuming maybe we'll just make a bunch of money on the back of this thing. I don't like any of that. So I'm disappointed to see this and I hope people push back against it. I do think 
we need to have a serious conversation about the utility rates in Texas and got to be something that could be done there. I thought it was a private company, but then yet they can pass bills to determine what they can and can't do and what they can do as a business. That sounds pretty entangled to me. I was just looking at uh, Senator Robert Nichols newsletter when he talks about the Senate bills that I believe relate to this Bitcoin mining restriction. Everything's about grid reliability and controlling the price to the consumer. I imagine that the sort of slightly anti-Bitcoin mining angle of this bill is likely not based on whatever science. It's probably not really uh, intended to necessarily produce the best outcome. It looks like the goal was to create a bill that these politicians could tell their constituents, hey, listen, we're doing something about this. And Bitcoin mining might have been kind of a boogeyman just emotionally for Texans who are concerned about power prices. And so it might have just been politically expedient to kind of take a swing at Bitcoin mining because it's a new industry. It doesn't have a huge number of lobbyists. It's not necessarily going to be able to cause trouble for these politicians by bankrolling candidates to challenge them kind of an easy target. And I think that's something that happens in democracy. And it can be very frustrating at the same time. You know, what is the alternative? Dictatorship? Well, who knows if uh, Colonel Gaddafi likes Bitcoin, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that's just my two cents. I, I think that it ties into a wider backlash against Bitcoin and proof of work and even crypto in general. But also there seem to be clear local issues with the way that ERCOT charges customers for power in Texas. Yeah, and I'm sure not related, but also just a couple of days later, two Texas bills were introduced, Senate Bill 2334 and House Bill 4903, which moved to create a gold-backed Texas digital currency. So it's a Texas-specific currency, and they're going to be buying and storing gold in their central piggy bank, and then they'll issue you a digital token of which has not been determined. I don't know if we need to get into the details just because the bill is mostly about how gold would be redeemed for dollars or for a digital token and kind of who would safeguard that. But it's interesting because it's not clear why they decided that Texas needs its own gold-backed digital currency, but it kind of is a hint that people are thinking about problems with the current dollar consensus and how we use dollars and the banking system and Federal Reserve and you know, essentially thinking about alternatives. What we often see is when people look at Bitcoin, at a certain level, there's an acknowledgement that Bitcoin works, but then the fact that Bitcoin is not backed by anything seems to throw people through a loop. And they try to reinvent it, but with an asset that backs the system. And they completely miss the point that Bitcoin removes the trust from financial transactions because we don't need to trust that anyone's holding the dollars for the transaction that we're making or holding the asset that backs the token that we're currently transacting with. And so these proposals to use gold or dollars or whatever to create a digital token, you know, that's functionally the same as, you know, certain types of contemporary banking models. There's nothing new here. Yeah, I was thinking we do need a way as Bitcoiners to explain this aspect of Bitcoin, because I've heard it from 
Um, I've heard it from Jamie Diamond actually in an interview. I've heard it from all kinds of politicians and pundits that Bitcoin isn't backed by anything. So, you know, you're throwing your money away. It's the greater fool theory. You're just wasting money because eventually somebody's going to figure out it's not worth anything and the whole thing's going to pop as and basically implying it's a bubble as if this is as if bubbles work the way Bitcoin has worked as it's monetized over the last decade, which is a, it's a silly statement, but it is what it is. Should we act this out? Should I be Jamie Diamond? Sure. Yeah, I'd, like, I'd love to hear your Jamie Diamond. So, Chris, this Bitcoin thing. Yeah, I can send money to anybody in the world. But I mean, it's backed by nothing. It's it's just vapor. It's it's ones and zeros. You know, how can I rely on this? Well, I'd ask you, Mr. Diamond, uh, what backs the U.S. dollar exactly? Well, I mean, it's backed by the U.S. military, of course, the, the world's strongest military. Sure. Which is sort of arbitrary and really means nothing, doesn't it? That really means what are they <laughs> nothing <laughs> for the most part. You want your dollar backed by war. I think what you have to consider with Bitcoin is the fact that it is not backed by by a particular institution or asset is actually one of its most valuable properties. It requires real world electricity, a valuable thing, a valuable commodity that is measurable in the real world gets converted into a scarce digital asset. There will only ever be 21 million of them and each individual asset is trackable and auditable and it has the capability of being instantly sent over the internet. So imagine being able to take something like gold and send it over email to somebody. But Chris, I can do this with my bank. We have JPM coin and we can do these transactions and we don't need to spend all of this electricity. When I want to send a couple million to San Moritz to buy another vacation house, you know, I just talk to my private banker and they arrange the wire and it happens in a couple of days. What you're describing is wasteful. That's true, Jamie. For some people, they have special access. Uh, but, you know, you yourself outlined the issues with the regulators and the institutions involved in those transactions. And of course, I know how frustrating it is for your compliance people with the finality of these transactions. See, the Bitcoin network will do everything from the actual asset to the communications protocol to the complete settlement layer. And then that'll be confirmed throughout the network by tens of thousands of individual nodes. But I, I mean, I, I still am hung up on this trust thing, Chris, because like I like this Texas proposal for a gold backed digital currency. I mean, I understand gold. I can, you know, send my Texas coin to the Texas bullion depository and then they'll ship me my gold. You know, I can't do that with Bitcoin. Wouldn't it be nice if that's how the world worked, if it could be that simple? But there's two classic flaws with this system. One, there is a central authority holding the gold on your behalf. So it's stored in their central bullion reserve or other gold reserves that may yet be specified. So you don't actually get to view, audit, or verify your gold. Only they can tell you how much gold is in there. And then the other issue here is they don't even have the technology figured out for issuing the digital token. And historically, local state governments not particularly good at building out these kinds of technologies that can scale and actually be used and usable by individuals. And then because it's their own unique thing, it's not really going to be something that's going to be that common outside the state, where Bitcoin is a worldwide currency that's already in use today that has an instant payment network, instant remittance, and the fees are incredibly low. And you don't have to rely on some central bullion to promise to swear with their hand up in the air that they have your gold. 
Now, Chris, I don't want to move the goalposts, but I am a billionaire, so I will. I actually view this decentralized international system as a problem because how can I do compliance if there's nobody who gatekeeps access to the system? I can't have my bank doing business with North Korea or Iran. I would get shut down. I could go to jail. So it seems to me that this Bitcoin thing, you know, really is very problematic because I need to follow all of these financial laws and Bitcoin doesn't seem to care about them. Yeah, Bitcoin has rules, not rulers. It has a protocol and it is accessible around the world, much like, you know, cash or gold. Well, I'm, I, I don't think I can maintain the Jamie Dimon persona any longer, but that was that was kind of fun cosplaying as a banker. <laughs> Boy, did you buy yourself anything? You should treat yourself. Well, I have this new uh, vacation house in San Moritz. It looks amazing. Nice. Yeah. And you got a whole team working on next year's paper already. Oh, yeah. They're working hard. A lot of interns in there. We don't have to pay them. So it's good. Yeah, those young interns, they'll take sats, the fools. <laughs> it's not even backed by anything. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's no <laughs> full faith and trust in the U.S. government there. <laughs> that U.S. government that's eating my own tail. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should be Treasury Secretary after I retire. <laughs> I, I think he wants to be a talk show host or something. Tell you the truth. Self-hosted podcast coming at you. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by Self-hosted.show coming at you. New episode this week. Womp, womp, womp. Let's see, we talked about all kinds of things. Uh, I made a major, massive breakthrough in power monitoring and home automation, one that has been years in the making. Alex has been looking for a great API to pull in weather information into his system. And of course, we talk a little bit of AI generation and transcription as well, and some note-taking stuff. All of that at selfhosted.show slash four. Sounds like a great show. I made my own breakthrough this week because I thought there was a problem running a ZFS backup system on a single board computer with only four gigs of RAM because it kept on dropping off the network and not doing backups. I was like, where is the error? It's hidden in these logs. I can't find it. And then I realized it was a bad SFP port on my switch. Bad ports happen, man. This week's Bitcoin Optech 245 covers a proposal to create accountability for lightning watchtowers. I think we need to talk about what a watchtower is and why lightning needs them. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's kind of in the name, right? It's like the sheriff in the old Wild West monitoring the network, ensuring that transactions are getting processed correctly. I mean, the idea would be really, I think, you, you want to prevent, say, like the Bitcoin dad from broadcasting um, an old state of a payment channel in order to try to steal funds from maybe his buddy who nicely opened up a channel to him. You know, so the watchtower, like the sheriff is watching for that kind of bad activity and maybe even going after the offender, you know. The situation is friend of the show, Bitcoin Lizard, who's just awesome, kindly opened a channel to the Bitcoin dad pod. And then due to the transaction flow, maybe someone was routing through our nodes. There was a moment in the past where all of the sats moved from his side of the channel to my side of the channel, and then maybe they moved back again. So now most of the sats, most of the money is on, is on his side of the channel. But I have saved that old state from when Bitcoin Lizard's funds were, were all on my side of the channel, when, when they were my funds, not his. And then because the Bitcoin dad is actually just a long running scam to steal one lightning channel, 
Now that I have his trust in this old state. Genius. I know. I've convinced him to go on vacation. And in the meantime, I snuck over to his house, which I geolocated using technology, and I cut his fiber cable. And his node is now offline. Now that his node is offline, I broadcast the old state. And because I know that he's taking a hike through the Andean mountains for three weeks, he is going to not be able to see that transaction in the two-week window for a hard close of a lightning channel. And I'm going to be able to steal the funds in that channel. But I am thwarted. What thwarted me, Chris? (coughs) The sheriff. The sheriff was watching for your old bogus state to try to steal Bitcoin Lizard's hard-earned sats. And then it can broadcast saying that you're a bogus actor. If it is a good sheriff, a useful sheriff, a sheriff that's actually paying attention and doing its job. Right. And the sheriff is a watchtower. So a watchtower is a type of Bitcoin lightning node, and it doesn't hold funds. But if you're a node and you have a bunch of channels to enforce the rules on lightning, all these nodes need to stay online and you're worried your node might go offline. You can basically share some data with the watchtower and it'll keep an eye on your channel. It'll keep an eye on your channel partner. And if the watchtower sees a violation of lightning rules, an old channel state, it will boom, inflict the justice transaction and send those funds to you. But the watchtower, why does it do this? Why will it always notice the bad state? Well, you know, maybe the watchtower is working with the uh, person stealing funds. How do you how do you solve this? And so there is a proposal from Sergey Delegado to basically create kind of a smart contract type thing where if a old bad state is broadcast and the watchtower doesn't uh, send out the justice transaction and protect your funds, you can kind of uh, penalize the watchtower because you can prove that they didn't uh, send the correct state. Yeah. So, you know, if you got a corrupt cop on the beat, just one of these awesome things you can do with cryptography. When I look at this, I think the Lightning Network is going to probably be slammed as as retail adopts as retail gets on lightning i have to imagine we are going to see continued security and scalability problems because it's just sort of a lesson that i think ethereum should pay attention to when you add complexity to this stuff there just becomes more attack surface and there also becomes just more games people can play right it makes on-chain seem simple using lightning in a way it makes on-chain seem simple that's the trade-off if you want to push the limit of these protocols you need to add complexity you need to add restrictions like always being online you need to trade much more data back and forth one issue with this proposal to add watchtower accountability is that the watchtower would have to hold much 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 more data and that's a problem because can you have a lightning node on a mobile phone that isn't pulling down 200 megabytes of data every day and making your phone overheat and the battery run down today that's pretty hard to do at the end of the day the useful things we can do with these sort of magical cryptographic systems are limited by the data throughput the storage requirements the energy required to do the computation. You know, it's it's pretty complicated making things that are actually useful and work. And traditional finance would solve this by hosting all of it on their infrastructure, on their cloud, under their control. That you never see. A giant data center sucking down power, running, you know, massive ancient mainframes, and you'd never see it and you'd never be aware of it and you'd never know. Bitcoin shows you how the sausage is made and we find it delicious. Indeed. I'm going to grill some up tonight. Now on the subject of data, 
Linda, we saw a guide to setting up a neutrino node, and we thought we would share that because this is a way to have a very lightweight Bitcoin node, which is also a lightning node that you can host yourself, you can run it on your own hardware, you can run it on your own VPS. It does not require a huge amount of storage or compute, so you can run it on a very small computer like a Raspberry Pi, and it gives you most of the attributes of a Bitcoin node, but not all. Yeah, it has you use Balance of Satoshi with a Telegram bot. Interesting to interact with some of it. It has Watchtower support if, uh, you know, you want to become one of the sheriffs on the Lightning Network. Does Neutrino come from the folks over at River? Is that, uh, am I making that connection? River definitely has the kind of guide to Neutrino. So I wonder if they're involved with the development, but I believe that Neutrino is actually a Bitcoin light client. So instead of a Bitcoin D Bitcoin node that you get from the, you know, the bitcoin.org website, Neutrino is like a, a much lighter node that doesn't store the entire chain state. It uses a technology called Simple Payment Verification, SPV, where it queries other nodes for new blocks and transactions, but it doesn't store the blockchain itself. Some Bitcoiners might get a little triggered when we discuss light clients with SPV, because when people talk about Ethereum nodes, they're talking about light clients that do simple payment verification. The Ethereum node that you can run on your computer at home is a light client, like this uh, Neutrino. The full node that actually could bootstrap the entire network and makes the network anti-fragile, in Ethereum, that's run on a server. On Bitcoin, that can still be run on a single board computer. So I think in the Bitcoin conversation, we've always referred to Bitcoin nodes as a computer that stores the entire chain state. And that's been kind of simple. It's been a good recommendation. It makes the network more resilient. But SPVs like Neutrino, I think they're kind of useful because they enable you to do stuff like have nodes that are almost like full nodes, but like running on maybe a mobile phone or something. And so building this into applications is easier. And for some people who might not have a one terabyte hard drive, I think that this might be an attractive node option because you can still connect wallets to it. You're not going to leak wallet pub keys when you try to query your balances. So it's definitely better than not having a node, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's kind of where it fits in my mind, too. And clearly it could be something attractive to Raspberry Pis, especially, you know, a few years down the road as uh, blockchains grow and everybody's ordinals get in there. <laughs> you know, maybe it would be even more attractive at that point. And it still keeps some diversity in the network as well, which isn't necessarily a bad thing at all. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Also consider joining the show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Details in the show notes. Pew, pew, pew. And uh, you got a reoccurring boost via Oak. Yes, this is a longtime listener who set up a self-hosted boosting system to send in a 3000 sat boost every week. Thank you so much. It is really cool. Not just that you're financially supporting the show, but that you're actually running software at home to do it. You're a big nerd and we love you. I got to play around with Oak. That could be a great way for me to just send a little bit of uh, value into the shows that I listen to on the regular. And even sometimes, you know, the shows I don't get a chance to listen to, but I want them to keep going. Ahanaga comes in with 50,000 
Sats and says, found you from a clip posted on Fountain. Great conversation. Well, thank you for the baller boost. Thank you very much. Biffo sent in 33,210 sats. Baffo send Biffo to contribute to best BTC podcast. Thank you, Biffo. You know, that Biffo, just when you think you got Baffo figured out, he comes along and Biffos you. Jim from Matik comes in with the row of ducks. I sent an email because I got an error boosting from the podcast index. Uh-oh, Dad. Was your node down? Was your node down? My node wasn't down. My node wasn't down. <laughs> I have to check what's going on there. Maybe he was boosting while we were recording the show, because sometimes it <laughs> happens for noise. I do <laughs> shut down the node because it's a little loud at the show. But he wrote, uh, hi, Chris and Dad. Uh, end of February during ice skating with my daughter, I fell on my wrist and went to the hospital to get a cast. It's a minor accident giving me the opportunity to work 50%, so I had more time to experiment with Bitcoin and watch plenty of BTC sessions on YouTube. Here's my steps. I put tails on some USB sticks. I installed Sparrow with persistent data. I created a multi-sig with three paper wallets and another single sig paper wallet. I went under RoboSats to buy my first Sats KYC free through Albi. Then I looked for ways to swap Sats from Lightning to on-chain Bitcoin. Moon or Mun was not working to generate a wallet, so I found Coinos.io. It's C O I Coin OS. Ah, yes, I've heard of CoinOS, yes. CoinOS.io, I just did a horrible reader. I just worked out great. More recently, I did another buy on RoboSats. This time, there was the option to do it on-chain directly, and the fees seemed to be right. To me, the private-public key pair on Bitcoin are a bit confusing. I'm coming from an era where I experimented with PGP and GPG keys, where the best practice was to create them offline through something like Tails and keep private keys offline. Now, with the Bitcoin paper wallet, the public key and the XPUB and ZPUB and private keys are 12 to 24 words from a list. But I don't grasp where this private key is stored. Is it on the blockchain? It seems just so incredible that just by writing down those words, I can restore my wallet without having a specific file to restore, as compared to, like, say, SSH keys, for example. Next step would be to set up my own node, and I have so many options. My node, Umbral, Star9, etc. Grateful for your content. It helped me make the switch. Wow, he really went all in, Jen. You went, wow, you went into the deep end. Great job. There is a lot here. So on the where is the private key, the private key is only sort of hot when you put your seed words into a Bitcoin wallet. And that's why Tails, which is a amnesiatic operating system, a operating system that runs in memory in any computer. And so it uh, doesn't leave a trace on the underlying computer and it's considered pretty secure. It's a way to create a computer environment where you can do something with like a private key. And then when you turn it off, all the data is deleted and it's not sort of like hanging around in memory where someone can find it years later and then steal all your funds. So when I generate private keys, I do that in a Tails environment because Tails doesn't leave traces on the underlying computer. And also Tails has both a software option to turn off networking so the computer is fully air-gapped while you're doing that, or you can just do it on a computer that's physically doesn't have a networking capability. So the seed words are literally a seed. When you put the seed words into a compatible Bitcoin wallet, the wallet has a generator that can take your seed and generate a private key from it. So your private key is those seed words. Well, technically speaking, your private key is those seed words run through a generator that generates the private key, but they will 
always generate the same private key. And so that's kind of the, uh, the cleverness of the, I think it's the BIP39 um, standard. Might be wrong about that. BIP39, mnemonic code. Yep, you got it. Yeah, CoinOS is also a pretty cool project. That's a kind of a wallet you can host yourself. I think the creator hosts an open instance. He'll let you sign up an account and just send funds to it, but it is custodied by the person running CoinOS. So uh, you might use it as a way to swap between Lightning and on-chain Bitcoin. That's actually taking advantage of the so-called free option problem. If you send them Lightning and you take out Bitcoin in a way, they're kind of eating a transaction fee for you, depending on how they set that up. Very cool setup. Thanks so much for detailing that. And uh, I think we'll list how you did it in the show notes so people can follow along if they feel like it. Your Mortals comes in with a row of ducks. You bang on with a gold ETF proxy argument. I used to own Perth Mint, PM Gold, as exposure to it. They are dodgy, to say the least. I woke up one day to find that somehow they had taken one of my shares with no communication as an administrative cost or some BS. Also, check out the recent scandal of them sending diluted gold to China. I did hear about that. All benefits are lost unless you self-custody. And that's hard nowadays. Hashtag Bitcoin fixes this. <laughs> Dead on, for sure. Mere Mortal sent in another boost, a... Is that a mega row of sticks? 11,111 sats? A satchel had, of sticks. A satchel, a satchel of sat sticks. A satchel of sat, sat sticks. I had two experiences with Lightning this week. One was effortlessly onboarding a friend with near instantaneous payments like magic. I was the slow point in the chain. The other was having a node fail when your huge baller boost came in, Chris. So much appreciated. She can be a cruel mistress. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah, the week of Linux Unplugged 500, I was checking channel capacity every day as big boosts were coming in. It was a great problem to have. Uh, and then, you know, you, now, I, now I'm set up, right? And of course, I probably won't have that problem for a long time, but now I'm all set for it. <laughs> Good work over there at the Mere Mortals podcast. Faraday Fedora comes in with a row of ducks. Hey guys, what do you think will be the first big nation to adopt or integrate Bitcoin? I can't see Russia or China giving their people that much freedom, even if it opens up options for trade. I wonder if the U.S. would give in as the dollar is looking less attractive for international trade and settle uh, for controlling the large U.S. on ramps, perhaps maybe the EU, maybe India. What do you think? That's a great question, Faraday Fedora. Honestly, I think there has been news that Russia is exploring Bitcoin as a way to settle foreign transactions for the state. And so they would probably have a policy of Bitcoin for the government, not for the people. I honestly don't think that we're very close to large nation state adoption of Bitcoin, because to be frank, the US dollar system isn't bad enough to incentivize that yet for most large institutions. It's still a dollar game, and it's going to be that way for a long time. That said, what changes it? Well, another zero or two on the price of Bitcoin turns it into an asset that's large enough to fulfill this role for large entities. So while we don't talk about price a lot on this podcast, the solution is price, in my opinion. Yeah, there's just not enough money in there right now. Um, and that is definitely an element. Plus, I think human nature shows us that a lot of places are going to have to try everything else 
And then after they've extinguished every single bad idea, they'll finally come around to Bitcoin. And I think that will be a process that takes a very long time. Plus, a state gets a lot of its power from having control over its currency. And so I also kind of tend to agree with that. It's unlikely that you're going to see the currency for the people swapped out, even if the central bank were to hold Bitcoin of the nation or something like that. We'll see. I think, you know, this is going to be one of those situations that's even hard for us to imagine today because it's going to be a slow, complex, organic process. Ghost of Whitman boosted in a thousand sats. Good job, boys. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Ghost. <laughs> Thanks to everybody who's turned on the sat streaming too. I go in there sometimes. Oh, yeah, look at that. It's funny because sometimes I happen to be looking at the dashboard just as somebody is listening. Also, Zorezm sent us 5,000 sats with no message this week. And Green Sheep sent 4,455 sats. We also got some other sats below uh, the uh, 1,000 cutoff limit. Or did we raise that? I can't remember now. But we got some below the cutoff limit, too. And uh, just want to say thank you, everybody. They're all appreciated. If you would like to send a note and a boost into the show to keep the production rolling and uh, send your thoughts along, go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Or if you want to keep your dang podcast app, just get Albie. Get Albie.com. You can top it off in the app with MoonPay or send your sats in there on chain or over lightning, however you like. And then head over to the podcast index. We'll put a link in the notes, but on the podcast index, you can find the Bitcoin Dad Pod. And once you got Albie set up, you can just boost right from their webpage. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on April 7th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.